One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. On this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we talk about the new tiered system of restrictions and you ask us, what does Dan Cardin's resignation mean for Keir Starmer's Labour Party? So the tier system for COVID restrictions is really kicking in now with more people across the country facing tier two, which is the tougher lockdown restrictions that are very similar to what places like Greater Manchester have been under for weeks. So London, Essex and York will have new tougher measures coming in where you can't mix households indoors from midnight on Friday. And really, this has actually exposed more of the sort of north-south divide, to put it crudely, that we were talking about on previous episodes of the podcast, where not only do representatives of other parts of the country that have been under stricter rules and sort of crippling economic measures that now Londoners are only just beginning to face, not only are those representatives saying how they've been overlooked, but also we still don't know whether Greater Manchester or when Greater Manchester is going to face the higher measures, the tier three measures, because that final decision has still yet to be made, although we are recording on Thursday afternoon. So that may have changed by the time some of our listeners are tuning in. But also there's still this this running sore of politicians, MPs and, and mayors feeling left out of the consultation process and feeling like they haven't been communicated with properly over what's going to happen in their areas. So Alva, what do all of the new tier two areas mean for those kind of relations between local representatives and central government? I think, as you say, the main issue is what's happening in Greater Manchester, where it's already in tier two. And there is some push from within central government to move it into tier three and quite a lot of pushback from local leaders. And basically, I think that's the real sticking point, because as people will have probably gathered from just following this over the weekend, I think that there's a a feeling within government that Andy Burnham has personally a lot of clout and that they are reluctant to impose tier three restrictions the way they want to 
if he isn't onside, as you say, we're recording on Thursday afternoon, maybe they will anyway, but I think they want to avoid a situation where you have Andy Burnham saying that these have been imposed by central government without his consent. So we had a kind of strange situation this morning where various health ministers had arranged to have, this time not Zoom, Microsoft Teams, meetings with the relevant MPs from the different areas Helen Whateley, one of the health ministers, had a meeting with London MPs this morning to say that London is moving to tier two, which is what Sadiq Khan has been calling for. And then another health minister had one with the Lancashire MPs. And Helen Whateley then spoke to the Greater Manchester MPs and said that no decision had been taken about restrictions for Greater Manchester. But at the same time, Eddie Lister, one of the I think he's officially called Boris Johnson's chief of staff, even though everyone always thinks that that's Dominic Cummings. Eddie Lister was on a a call with local leaders from Manchester saying that they had to agree to these measures, whether they liked it or not, which means that we've been in a weird situation where the BBC on its main like news channels and on the news website has already been saying that Manchester is moving to tier three, while Sky News and other places are saying that the decision hasn't been taken yet so I think that that's all kind of a bit of a mess I think there's always a balance to be struck the more consultation that you do the more likely that it does leak before you finish deciding but like we were saying last time I don't think that the conversations that ministers have with MPs do constitute a genuine consultation I think that consultation is happening maybe a little bit more with local leaders but likely not really if Eddie Lister is just telling them that they have to agree So, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a mess. And I think it's an interesting conundrum for Labour in that local Manchester MPs have been saying all along, really, I mean, I'm not sure if this applies to all of them, but certainly like the MPs from Manchester constituencies that I can think of off the top of my head have have all basically been arguing that Manchester is, is not the same as Liverpool and has a a sort of different coronavirus problem in that cases are quite high, but they've come down a bit slightly and they're largely concentrated in student areas and in the student population, they're all quarantining. So it isn't necessarily necessary, they would argue, to bring in even stricter lockdown for the entire city or the greater area. So they've been kind of pushing back against tougher restrictions, but at the same time, they are echoing the sort of national labour message that they want a circuit breaker, which I think will probably be confusing to some people, even though I think you can see the logic of that, that you don't want tier three, but you want a circuit breaker. Mm, Well, that was the logic that Andy Burnham was trying to communicate, wasn't it? Because I think when Keir Starmer made his intervention and decided to support the idea of a circuit breaker, lockdown nationwide. I think the Conservative Party were quite excited to try and sort of draw some kind of conflict between him and Andy Burnham and maybe other local leaders who had been saying that they that they didn't want their area to go into tier three. But Andy Burnham had actually said that he would prefer a nationwide circuit breaker type lockdown to just Greater Manchester going into tier three, perhaps not with the rest of the country. So it does seem like there is there is coordination between the sort of central Labour Party and the local representatives. 
nevertheless, you know, there there is going to be there's always going to be some division between MPs and and the areas that they represent and what their central parties are dictating. Not least the Tory MPs who represent some of the seats in the North and Midlands that are being affected. So there's been quite a lot of chatter, hasn't there, about how they also feel, along with some of the Labour voices that we've already discussed, like Lisa Nandy, who represents Wigan, they also feel left out of discussions and feel left out of of adequate funding and that their constituents are are sort of being dismissed and forgotten about for the sake of the greater good. Yeah, and there was a a really great scoop and a a quite jaw-dropping story from Sky News yesterday that management consultants contracted by the government to work on the test and trace system in England are on salaries that amount to roughly £7,000 a day and over a million pounds a year, you know, on the same day that we, as you've been saying, we've been having a lot of discussion about the amount of economic support available to people in areas of lockdown. And also like some, I mean, you're better on the numbers on this kind of thing, but specific questions around the exact wages that people are being asked to live off under the sort of the job retention scheme, the the sort of the local extension of the furlough scheme and so on. Therese Coffey, the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, was asked if she would be able to live off £5.60 something per hour. So we're in a kind of strange situation where these very, very low wages are being contrasted with huge salaries being paid to people who you know clearly haven't made a great success of of test and trace Mm. it's been slightly overshadowed by all of the new restrictions that we've been talking about different places moving to tier two and possibly Manchester moving to tier three but I think that that's a big moment in the narrative of this crisis because we haven't had the numbers really involved in these contracts to date because of sort of the way this is an emergency situation, a lot of the scrutiny that you would normally have with the awarding of government contracts to private companies. We haven't had that level of transparency. So these salaries are quite shocking. We already knew that there were loads and loads of contracts going to places like McKinsey and BCG and so on. But Yeah, I think that it slightly shifts the narrative. I mean, I would imagine that if you were writing a history of this, that those salaries would get a mention. I think you're right. You've hit the nail on the head. I think one of the the undercurrents, particularly of interviews that I'm doing now with people who are kind of at the front line of the crisis, there's an undercurrent of feeling that some people are winning out from Mm -hmm. the government's decisions, whether it's outsourcing or whether it's direct help packages and some people are either just being forgotten or or losing out so someone I interviewed yesterday who's shielding and I was speaking to her about a different story but she was sort of giving me her reflections on the news she felt really aggrieved that Boris Johnson in his in his speech on Monday I think the press conference on Monday hadn't mentioned what was going to happen with shielders and that Jenny Harris the next day was trying to clear things up and saying well you we're not asking people to shield again yet and she was saying is that just because they don't want to have to give us anything and she was sort of comparing that to the amount of money that she thought rightly was going to you know the people who have been furloughed and and people who are getting extra universal credit etc but you know the people who were shielding their circumstances have just meant that they're in this difficult situation there's nothing that they can do without the government giving them support if they want them to stay indoors and so I think there's there's sort of that could be a silent million or two million people who feel completely forgotten and left out by help packages. And so, like you say, stories about people 
behind bungled schemes, particularly those that have been contracted to the private sector being paid large amounts of money to deliver not very much, will be very, very jarring to the ears of some who are, whose livelihoods and, and lives and well-being have been deeply affected by this. And now they're kind of in a limbo because even with this tier system, it's not as clear as the original lockdown what everyone in society is supposed to do and how much of a repeat is it of la- last time. So I think that's going to be a theme that comes up more as they try and iron out the details of what each of these different tiers actually means in practice. Yeah, I think so. And and also, not just in terms of people shielding, but the shift in narrative that we've seen slightly from Rishi Sunak over the past few months, you know, at the start of the crisis, he said that he would do whatever it takes to support the economy through this really difficult time. But as things have gone on, the message from the government is basically that we can't afford certain things that like Mm. we can't afford another I mean, maybe by the time people are listening to this podcast, the government position on it will have moved again. But that basically, we can't really afford the economic damage that even a short national lockdown would bring in. That, you know, at the start, we could afford to pay 80% of people's wages on the furlough scheme, but now we can't afford that. And it's down to two thirds. The way the sort of, it's the, the 20 point increase in universal credit is being mm-hmm. is you know potentially up for being scrapped again the, now the government is looking at making tiny changes and tiny savings when we're talking we're often talking about people on very very low wages anyway or people existing on not very much money anyway and then you know a salary like five pounds something an hour on the one hand and then you know seven seven k a day on the other I think that there's a feeling that because of the basically the economic harm of the first lockdown that we need a more austerity mindset this time and that we can't afford certain things but clearly in parts of the economy and parts of government there's a sense that you can afford to spend much more money on paying management consultants huge salaries and I think that that will have like huge cut through across the political divide it's like handy for Labour I suppose in that that's an issue that will absolutely unite them and that Labour has been broadly united on its economic message for the entire crisis and already this week they were before the national circuit breaker kind of took things over they were already planning a big push on privatization and the outsourcing of public contracts and so revelations like that I think only really bolster their argument that whatever part of the Labour Party you're on clearly the way the government has been managing the public finances and handing out contracts hasn't been terribly efficient. There's no way of, of checking the quality of the work that these management consultants are doing. You know, maybe maybe they've done a brilliant job and no one could have done it better because we don't have a comparison, but it just seems unlikely given quite how badly the test and trace system has been performing like those sage minutes really have said that it's been next to ineffective that you need a certain level of capacity of testing and before it can make a meaningful difference to your containment of the virus. If it's too slow or if you're not doing it in sufficient numbers, there's kind of no point in doing it at all. And that's kind of where we, where we are at the moment. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. And luckily the power has come back in the room in Parliament where Stephen's working, so he has joined us. Welcome, Stephen. Welcome. So our question this week is, what does Dan Cardin's resignation mean for Keir Starmer's Labour Party? Do you want to go in at the deep end, Stephen? I mean, it's, it's one of those things where I think it means very little in a vacuum, but it means quite a, a lot. in Because basically, right, the, the thing that is very clear about Keir Starmer's first shadow cabinet is you can see the ways and it's a transitional object, right? And I think some people have succeeded in their briefs in ways that some people, I think, who, who might have been likely to be moved have not been. Some people have had their roles transformed in, like, so if you're like Rachel Reeves, say, the reason why Rachel Reeves was given the, um, the position she was is that she has been very critical of outsourcing in her role as select committee chair in the base brief, right? And she also is someone who had the exact same political journey as Keir on Brexit, right? So Keir was someone who was very much in 2017 saying to people, look, guys, it can't be stopped. What are you on? We, we need to back some kind of soft Brexit, which was very much Rachel Reeves' position. And then she m- moved to being one of the people like, we're irretrievably deadlocked, the bigger half of our coalition wants wants this, we have to move towards them. And so it very much was a kind of like, here's someone who he's politically aligned with on the issues of the brief and this thing, but who I think we might have expected to play a more minor role because her role also has an integral part of the COVID response. She's made herself an indispensable part of the setup. I think, you know, the, the kind of essentially important thing is lots of the people who we would have regarded as rising stars from the Corbynite wing, are now outside the tent, which I think makes it more likely than, one, it means that there may never be the kind of thoroughgoing reshuffle, but I think it also makes it more likely than the Labour Party under Keir Starmer will be run by its centre and right, as opposed to by all three wings. So I guess that's kind of what I think the biggest shift is, right? In a way, you had like a kind of who's who of the kind of like big forces of, of the party's tendency in the Shadow Treasury team, you had Dan Carden, Bridget Phillipson, Annalise Dodds, Wes Streeting, and Pat McFadden. In many ways, you had like kind of, you know, the great hopes of, 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 of four distinct, in some cases overlapping, but there are quite important differences between, between all of that quartet. Now, of course, Daniel Carden, in my view, well, I think actually probably between him and Bell Ribeiro Addy, the, the two greatest stars of the Corbynites in the Parliamentary Party, now also on the back benches. So I think broadly it shifts Starmer's labour a little bit to its right. That's interesting because I I always think that the received wisdom in Westminster is that you you want to have some of your enemies I'm putting that in inverted commas but you want to have some of your opponents in the tent so that they're not able to be as vocal and as critical from the back benches but because like you said someone like Dan Carden was was viewed as sort of a Corbynite rising star they're less likely to get the sort of media loving, mainly because they haven't been in positions where you can say former shadow secretary or former this or that. 
and quote them as if they're a big beast whenever they criticise their leadership. So they almost pose less of a threat on the backbenches than, say, Corbyn's most sort of vocal opponents did on the backbenches when he when he was leader. So I suppose because lots of these, lots of the more impressive Corbynite Labour MPs and newer MPs who haven't had significant roles and therefore can't be seen in the media as sort of big beasts or people worth making headlines about calling them senior Labour politicians slamming the leadership. I guess there's less of a threat of having those kind of people on the backbenches and not in the tent. Yeah, I think you're exactly right there. And and there's a really interesting compare contrast here, which is Jess Phillips's profile or lack thereof (laughs) since becoming a shadow cabinet minister. It's not because she's not working hard. It's not because she's not engaged in her brief. It's because fundamentally Jess Phillips's political kind of media success was as a phenomena of someone who gave good copy from an anti-Corbyn perspective. And now she's like just another Labour MP who's like concerned about cuts to the social fabric and how that impacts on domestic violence. Now, obviously, I think that's a hugely important issue. But like broadly, there's quite literally 200 Labour MPs who have those views. And so I think you're right in that like ultimately like Dan Cardin does not have the same media use. So the interesting question, right, is I was speaking to several Conservative MPs today you know, in Parliament where my power is, is intermittent about you know, how they might attack it. And lots of them were like, oh, you know, we'll do that. He's a Remainer, he's a Knight, yada, yada, his record is DPP. But in some ways, I do think the unspoken vulnerability is the fact that there are 50 Labour MPs who are significantly to his left, who, regardless of whether or not they're in the front bench, will have significant influence over the legislative agenda if there is a Starmer-led government. And I think that's the one situation where people like Dan Cardin could enjoy a particularly prominent media afterlife is if they become part of that story. Okay. Yeah, you know, that like story of, you know, ooh, he might be a, a boring, non-threatening lawyer who's not going to do anything too radical. But have you seen these 50 people? Right? That's the one situation which I can see people mm. like Dan Cardin having a similar media existence to some Corbyn sceptics. And Alva, you've been speaking to people about this resignation story today. What are you picking up? Yeah, it's, it's interesting hearing um, Stephen's take on it because I know that because of the power situation in Westminster, he hasn't read my piece on it. So it's nice to sort of check <laughs> how, how aligned we are. <laughs> we, we, we broadly are. So I think the main thing for me, which is similar to what Stephen has already said, is that this is a big loss to the shadow treasury team, that Dan Cardin, as someone from the left of the party and kind of one of the most talented people from that wing, was the kind of the Corbynite on the shadow treasury team, which has been up until this point under Keir Starmer, a really sort of dynamic, interesting team that represented really like the spectrum of opinion within the Labour Party in a way that I think was really crucial in terms of like the thing we know looking ahead to the next election is that Labour wants to project a really united message on the economy that can unite its intended very broad coalition of voters, but also that hopefully can unite the entire parliamentary Labour Party. It wasn't guaranteed that that would happen anyway if if he stayed on the Shadow Treasury team. But, you know, the fact that that was a broad church of talented people all projecting the same economic message from Labour means that I think that Keir Starmer's team and the Shadow Treasury team are all just genuinely quite disappointed that they won't have him as a member of that team, especially since it was only yesterday that he delivered quite a punchy speech on government outsourcing 
that did very well on social media and was getting quite a lot of traction in exactly the way that they would really want. And then, yeah, the sort of the broader trend of people leaving of the sort of the left flank of of the Labour Party increasingly leaving the front bench and, and being found on the on the back benches. I think it's it also raises interesting questions about the Labour approach on issues of of national security and sort of big home office brief, which we were, we talked about a little bit in previous podcasts. But you know, we saw several more junior PPSs so like the sort of the lowest rank of, of front bench, several more junior Labour MPs from the left of the party not voting with the Labour whip and losing their position on the front bench over the overseas operations bill. And mm. this bill, the CHIS bill, the sort of the spy cops bill, as it's been called, represents a similar challenge really for the Labour Party. And I'm interested to hear both of your views on this um, because... Um, it's a little bit like we were talking about the other week. I mean, maybe it doesn't matter if some towards the left of the party are taking a different line to the leadership on this. That I'll, Maybe you get the best of both worlds if your Dan Cardins are standing up against a bill which has loads of apparent problems with it that Amnesty International argues, but, you know, basically gives undercover cops a license to commit murder, undercover agents a license to torture there's kind of a debate still over whether that is completely the case because there's a sort of provision in it that they still can't undermine international human rights law, but but it's still not entirely clear. And also the bill would allow undercover agents to infiltrate trade union activity, which is a sore spot for a lot of MPs. But, you know, I suppose the question is, is it a problem that Labour is whipping its MPs to abstain on these things so that as the Labour leadership sees it, they can't be painted as unpatriotic or as a risk to national security by the Conservative Party. Is that a problem or is it actually fine? Do you get the best of both worlds politically if some MPs rebel and you do lose people like Dan Cardin, but ultimately you don't get that negative message from the Conservative Party and you keep your coalition happy? I guess I think, okay, obviously, full disclosure here, I'm against this bill and therefore my analysis, my political analysis is going to be coloured by my own views here. But I just think that from unlike people actually hearing about your position, people resigning is great news, right? Broadly, a large chunk of political journalism is more interested in fights than policy. And this is a fight. But I know I've said this before, but I just think it bears repeating. There is a massive row coming down the track over the Human Rights Act. Seeing as the Labour Party is going to be voting against attempts to repeal the Human Rights Act. I just don't understand what it is the Labour Party thinks it is buying, credibility-wise, on this issue, that it's not going to cash in quite quickly. I basically just think these are all useless losses, as it were, because like this doesn't mean that they can be like, we've backed our boys, we've been tough on security. Like You, you can vote against all of these things, you can vote against, you can abstain on all of them other than the Human Rights Act, which is where Labour will end up. I just don't believe from an internal party management perspective that there is any prospect and that's not where they'll end up. And I just kind of think, like, you might as well not have, like, done the rest. Not least because I don't think these rows are big enough that they because they're not, they're not transmitting the message of Labour has changed. They're just transmitting the, we don't want to be attacked on this issue, which they're going to be because they are going to vote to defend the Human Rights Act, I assume. Do you say that because of the inevitability of the prospect of the government trying to repeal the Human Rights Act? Yeah. 
Yeah, I see what you mean because that is ultimately that is the the issue that all of these bills or the debates over these bills that's the underlying issue isn't it if you trust the conservative party to respect and maintain the human rights act then fine you know abstain on this bill but like you say and and for you know Kistama especially um considering the kind of lawyer that he is and and the labor party and everyone who's watched politics for the past few years knows that that's unlikely to be the case You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. Thank you.